following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, this morning we come to our final study in our series on the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace where we have been studying as a church family from Scripture the saving work of the triune God. We opened up by considering really what some call the only point of Calvinism, and that is the absolute sovereignty of God over absolutely everything and how he rules and reigns over all things perfectly for his glory and for the good of his people. We then took some time to think about and think through the biblical doctrine of man, mankind. God created man in his own image to represent him on earth. And so there was and still is a dignity about man. But it isn't long until we see this dignity marred by disobedience. Dignity marred by disobedience. Man in Genesis 3 sins and cuts himself off from God and from goodness. And so this once purely dignified creature is now dead in sin, depraved in nature, and spiritually disabled from doing anything pleasing to the living God. And therefore, he is doomed to eternal punishment. It's essential that when we think of mankind, when we take the time to explain mankind to others, to show them their need for the gospel, that we think of these things in terms of six categories. Dignified, disobedient, dead, depraved, disabled, and therefore doomed. We then reflected on man's only hope, God the Father's gracious act of unconditional election. You see, if man was to ever recover from his fallen state and be rescued from his dreadful fate, God would have to be the one to initiate this recovery and this rescue, and that is exactly what he does in election. You see how the doctrine of unconditional election complements the doctrine of absolute, radical, total depravity. That if man is disobedient and dead and depraved and disabled and doomed, God must take the initiative to rescue man, to restore man, to recover man. God sets his the glorious work of salvation into motion by mercifully determining to save a people for himself. And this was not a cold and impersonal act on God's part, for we learned that he chose to save a vast multitude of wrath-deserving sinners to give to his son to be his 
spotlessly pure, immaculate, and faithful bride. And that led us to the third point in the doctrines of grace, the saving work of God the Son. We saw that if this multitude of willfully disobedient, hopelessly dead, radically depraved, spiritually disabled, and hopelessly doomed sinners were ever to have their sins blotted out, their filthiness washed away, their bondage to sin broken, and the wrath of God propitiated on their behalf, then the sinless Son of God would have to bear the punishment for their sin. He would have to offer his life as a ransom to release them from the captivity to sin. And he would have to face the severity of God's righteous wrath in their place. And so he came down from heaven, this son, this eternal son, not to lay down his life to make salvation possible for all people without exception, for that would be to oppose and set himself against the Father's purpose of election. But he came to save his people. Matthew 1.21, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to reconcile his people to God and God to them. Yes, he came to satisfy the demands of divine justice for all those and only those whom the Father gave him. It was an actual propitiation and an actual ransom that was paid to release actual captives from the actual power of sin and Satan. It wasn't a potential ransom. It wasn't a potential sacrifice that, well, here's the provision. Now you have to make use of it. He actually paid the price to release slaves that belonged to sin and Satan. And that brought us, fourthly, to stand in awe at the Spirit's role in all of this. The Father elects us and sets our salvation into motion. He then sends His Son to pay the ransom to release us from our bondage to sin and to purify and perfect us who collectively are considered to be His bride. And because He, by His blood, paid for us in full for him not to get what he paid for would signify two things. Either it would signify iniquity on the part of God the Father, who promised that his son, that if his son laid down his life for his people, that he would be united to his people, Isaiah 53. But he failed to stay true to his word. That would be iniquitous on God's part. Son, if you lay down your life as a guilt offering for them, you will see your offspring again. You will divide the spoil with the strong. You will be united to your people. And then for the father to not deliver upon that promise would be sin on his part. Or for the son to pay for us in full and then not get what he paid for would signify not only iniquity on the part of God the father, but insufficiency on the part of the son's sacrifice. He lays down his actual life as an actual sacrifice that pays the actual ransom price for actual sinners that were actually chosen and entrusted to him by the father. But because his sacrifice was insufficient, 
these sinners remain in their sin and outside of a saving relationship with him. But we know that that is not the case. For when we turn to the end of the book that directs our eyes to the throne room in heaven, we hear that heavenly song celebrating the redemptive accomplishments of God the Son. The song that goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Did you catch that? By your blood, you ransomed people for God. The substance of this song is that Christ ransomed people for God. The word is agorazo, and it's used 30 times in the New Testament. And this is the only place in the New Testament that the word is translated as the English word ransomed. Two times in Revelation 14, it's translated as redeemed. But the 27 times out of 30 times it's found in the rest of the New Testament, it's translated as buy, buys, buying, bought. So what they are saying in heaven is you bought people for God. You bought people for the living God. It doesn't say that he made them them buyable. It does not say that he made buying them a possibility. He actually bought them. He actually bought them. And because he actually bought them, they actually end up with him. That's particular redemption. The son actually buys a people and therefore they actually end up with him. And that's because the spirit of God sought them and brought them to the son when he effectually called them and regenerated them. Contrary to what many people believe, the Holy Spirit is not trying to save everyone he can, succeeding in some cases and failing in other cases. For him to be actively seeking to save everyone he can would be for him to contradict the Father's purpose of election and the Son's particular purchase of redemption. Because the members of the Trinity are united in their divine essence and also in their saving purposes and intentions, the Spirit of God is sent to awaken and regenerate all those and only those the Father chose and the Son paid for, no more and no less. Always remember that the sought ones are the bought ones, and the bought ones are the sought ones. And of course, this brought us to consider the fifth and final point last week, the perseverance of the saints, or the perhaps better phrased, better phrase, the preservation of the saints, which states that those who were chosen by the Father and paid for by the Son and regenerated by the Spirit will most certainly be kept by the Father and the Son, and by the Holy Spirit, from the moment they are justified until the time they are glorified, they will be kept, they will be preserved, until that day they enter into the joy of their master in that eternal kingdom. The perseverance of the saints. Those whom God foreknows, 
He predestines, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. It's an unbreakable chain at every point. Well, in this last and final message, I want to take some time to address some questions and objections to the doctrines of grace. I'm sure you have questions. Some of you throughout the series have asked various questions. And while time obviously prevents me this morning from being able to answer and address every single question and every objection, the path I've chosen to take this morning is to address specific Bible verses that on the surface seem to contradict everything we've been studying in this series. To be specific, I want to address those universal passages, those all passages, those world passages that seem to suggest that God's redeeming love and his saving intentions are directed to all people without exception. Everyone who has lived and ever will live, not just those that the Bible refers to as God's elect. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to see that these universalistic passages that are often marshaled against the particularistic passages and used to support a universal or unlimited atonement in no way contradict either the Father's unconditional election of particular sinners unto salvation or the Son's actual and particular redemption of his sheep. Neither do these verses contradict the Spirit's effectual call that extends only to those who have been chosen by the Father and paid for by the Son. You see, most questions and objections that are against the doctrines of grace, they stem from these universalistic passages. And so we're going to spend our time this morning examining a handful of them. As we approach this sacred ground... As we go into such a study, we know off the bat, from the starting point, that God's word does not contradict itself. God's word will never contradict itself. It is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is clear. One of the things we hear, either from Arminians or provisionists, is that Calvinists try to explain away the meaning, the plain reading of some of these universalistic passages. And they love to claim that they are holding to, quote, the plain reading of the Bible, the plain reading of the text. But what we often see is that, in their mind, a plain reading of a passage often excludes either the original language the original context, or the wider biblical context regarding these matters. And so, often when people hear things, or say, people often say things like, well, I'm just holding to the plain reading of the passage. I don't know why you have to explain it further. It's clear. What they're actually holding to is a superficial reading of a passage that ignores both the immediate context and the wider context biblical context. And so the first thing I want to say this morning is that the word all is not a self-interpreting word. The word all is not a self-interpreting word. We use that in everyday life. I can say this morning, well, now that you're all here, let's begin. Is all, all of the world? Is it all of Grace Community Church? Because there's still folks from Grace Community that aren't here this morning. 
What is all? It's limited. It's, it's not a self-interpreting word. There's nothing more frustrating in these discussions when proponents of a universal or unlimited atonement throw out the word all and say, look, it says all. Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. God desires all to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all to come to repentance. It says all. And all means all. And that's all all means. The word all doesn't always mean all without exception, as we're going to see. Let me give you some examples. About five or seven, about seven, six, seven. For example, in Genesis chapter six, verse 13, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Question to you. Does all mean all without exception here? Well, no. God limits the word all to everyone and everything except Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. Another example, Matthew chapter 2. Beginning of Matthew chapter 2, we are told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king because, or behold, when that happened, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now listen to Matthew 2, 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Is this all without exception? Every single citizen, resident, Hanging out in Jerusalem at that time? All means all. Well, no, because if we read Luke's gospel, specifically chapter 2, we read that there was a man, Simeon, who was a righteous man, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. You remember that when Christ, he came to visit Christ, Christ went to wait with his parents to be uh, consecrated, dedicated in the temple. Simeon took this child up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. As he's holding the baby Jesus, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Imagine holding that child and seeing in that child's eyes salvation. Simeon was in Jerusalem waiting longing to hear about the coming of the Messiah. And when he did, he rejoiced. And then a few verses after that, we read about a prophetess named Anna who also began to give thanks to God because she had been waiting for redemption to come. So clearly, when Matthew says that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod when they heard about the birth of Christ, it doesn't mean all without exception. It referred to all of Herod's dynasty, those who ruled with him, his royal court, if you will, Jerusalem's official leadership. Another example is in Acts chapter 2. You know in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost, poured out upon the church, just as Joel chapter 2 verse 28 foretold, and people began to speak in other languages, other tongues. And you had people from all these surrounding countries and regions hearing the church 
telling them in their own language the mighty works of God. The church was blessed with the ability to speak in other languages. They were foreign to them. and They were able to communicate the gospel to all these visitors in Jerusalem. And of course, some onlookers were like, these people are drunk. Well, Peter gets up in the midst of the crowd. He stands up with the other 11 and he explains what's going on. And he says, Acts chapter 2, verse 16, these people aren't drunk. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2.28. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So, if we are going to use and apply the same hermeneutic, the same principles of biblical interpretation, and the same tactics of those who would oppose the doctrines of grace, we must conclude that either, number one, all doesn't always mean all without exception, or, number two, we're forced to believe that the Bible contradicts itself because not everyone in the world on that day received the Holy Spirit. Even though the prophecy said that the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. We know from Scripture that God's Word does not contradict itself. And so we are forced to conclude that all flesh isn't everyone, everywhere in the whole wide world, but rather the phrase all flesh was limited to the gathered church in Jerusalem, that company of about 120 persons. And so the word all doesn't always mean all without exception. Example number four, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. But are all men without exception justified and given the gift of eternal life? That's what it says here. One act of righteousness, that is Christ's act of righteousness, leads to justification and life for all people, all men. Are all men justified? Are all people given the gift of eternal life? Well, no. We know that not all people will be saved. As much as that grieves us. However, here's another example that the word all isn't self-interpreting. It always comes with a context. The word all in Romans 5.18 is limited to all who are in Christ. They are the ones who are justified. They are the ones who are given life. They are the ones who receive life and justification. And so it's superficial and, friends, it's irresponsible and even inconsistent whenever brothers or sisters point to the same word all in other passages that fit with either the Arminian or provisionist presuppositions and say, it says all, and so it must mean all without exception. All means all, and that's all all means. Example number five, 1 Timothy 4, 4. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It says everything. Everything. Everything created by God is good. And nothing out of all the things God created is to be rejected if it's received with a thankful heart. 
God created rocks. God created skunks and dirt. So these things shouldn't be rejected. God created them. Receive them with thanksgiving. Go cook a skunk for lunch. In the Greek, it says all. And so we should be able to eat these things. How about Romans 14, verse 2? When siding with the Galatians, Paul says, one person believes that he may eat all things. Does he literally mean all things without exception? Like poison ivy? Horse hooves? Goat heads? Come on. All means all. The word all in these contexts is limited to all things that are actually edible, folks. You you know these things. All things that are edible, all things that are safe to eat. John 4.29, Jesus is talking with the woman in Samaria. She comes to believe, believe in him, to trust in him. So much so that she goes into the town to tell everyone about him. She says, come, verse 29 of John 4, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then 10 verses later, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Does that mean everything? Absolutely everything? It means it says all. All. No. I mean, did Christ actually tell her all that she ever did? Did Jesus tell her when you were four years old? At 4.13 in the afternoon, you went for a picnic with your parents to the Jordan River. And you played in the river for exactly 47 minutes and 31 seconds. No, friends, he exposed her sin. He exposed her past. And then he graciously offered her living water that he himself, he alone could give her. So the word all is not self-interpreting, which is why it's dangerous and irresponsible to assume that the word all, wherever you see it in the Bible, always and only means all without exception. Oftentimes, all means all without distinction or all kinds or all classes, as we're going to see. And so the first text I want you to turn to is John chapter 12, verse 32. John 12, 32. Jesus says in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. So those who would hold to a universalistic or unlimited atonement will say, see, he will draw all people to himself. All people will be drawn to Christ. And most of the time when you talk to these individuals, the drawing in their mind is more of a wooing. It's an influence. However, in the Greek, the word isn't woo. It's not to influence or anything like that. The word woo means to try to gain the love of someone. Helkio is the word in the Greek. It means to haul, to draw, to drag. It implies a 
forceful, powerful drawing of something in, drawing it, holding it to yourself. The same word is used in John chapter 21, verse 11, when Peter was fishing and he hauled the net to shore full of large fish. 153, John says. It's used in John 18, verse 10, to talk about Peter drawing out the sword from his sheath to strike the servant's ear. I mean, that's not what he was aiming at, but that's what fell off. How about in Acts chapter 16, verse 19? The same word, Helkia, when Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself, it's used in Acts 16, 19 to refer to Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace before the rulers. So is this a wooing? Paul, Silas, be influenced to come into the marketplace to stand trial. Come over. It's the best decision. It's not a woo. It was a forceful dragging these guys into the marketplace to stand trial. Yet that's what people assume Jesus is talking about here. He will woo people to himself. He will influence people to himself. He's trying to draw all people, they'll say. I have a problem with that statement. And as a Christian, you should have a problem with that statement. A statement that says he's trying to draw everyone to himself. First of all, our almighty, omnipotent God does not try. Trying is a creature word, not a creator word. He simply does. He acts. He accomplishes. Remember Isaiah 46.10? God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all my purpose. There's no trying. So what Jesus is saying here is that when he is lifted up in crucifixion, he will draw and drag and haul all people to himself powerfully, effectively. Now, the question we need to ask is, are all people hauled to Christ? Is he trying and failing? Or is he trying, and here's how people get around it. They'll say, he's not failing. He just, because he's a gentleman, he respects their decision to go to hell. How many times have you heard that one? They'll never force you. He's a gentleman. He tries, but if he's rejected, he, he walks away in shame. Or he walks away, I'll leave, you, I'll leave you alone. I tried, but you want to go on your sin? Okay, I'll, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to knock down the door of your heart. No, friends, he isn't trying and failing, nor is he trying, and then when he's rejected, he stops trying. That viewpoint is absolutely insulting to his omniscience. Insulting to his omniscience. It implies that he tries to influence people and then he learns and discovers that they don't want salvation and so he backs off. But he knows the end from the beginning. Christian based his prayer of confession on that psalm. Psalm 139. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. You know a word on my tongue even before I speak it. He knows all things. Past, present, future. Even hypothetical, he knows what could have happened had things ended up that way. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows who will be saved. Why? Why does he know who will be saved? Because his father has already chosen whom he will save 
And he has already given them to the Son. And the whole reason the Son came into the world was because the Father gave him a people. And now he's going to die for those people. Before the foundation of the world, they were chosen. Contrary to our modern elections, this election is over. So then what does it mean that Christ will draw or drag or haul all people to himself? The question is still out there. Is it all without exception? Well, look at the context. Go back up to verse 20. Go back up to verse 20. John the Apostle writes, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. In this original context, friends, the original hearer would have been drawn in. Oh my gosh, Greeks at the feast? This is incredible. They're at a Jewish feast, and yet there's Greeks at this feast. This is amazing. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And he prays now, Father, glorify your name. Well, then a voice comes down from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This happens in the context of Greeks, Gentiles, of all people, coming to inquire of the Jewish Messiah, coming to ask to say, we want to see him. We want to lay eyes on him. We wish to see Jesus. And Jesus follows up by saying, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people, even Gentiles, to myself. Earlier in the Gospel of John, this word Greek is used again, but it's used, again, John is very strategic here. Look at John 7, verse 33. These Greeks in John 12 come and say, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus follows up by saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, look at John 7, 33. Jesus then said to these religious rulers, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, and notice how they're meaning this as an insult, But John and these other apostles who were writing after all of this 
were very selective in what they chose to convey to their immediate hearers and to us. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What happens in the Great Commission, friends? Jesus sends his apostles to begin at Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Did he intend to go to the Greeks and teach them? Yes, even as he intended to come to the Americas to teach us through his church, his body. So we're given this hint. Is he going to go to the Greeks? In chapter 7, in chapter 12, these Greeks appear to want to see him. And Jesus follows up and says, I will draw all people to myself. That's John's subtle way of saying, actually, yes, salvation is no longer limited to the borders of Israel. All people in John 12, 32 takes us outside of Israel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Well, we've seen how this word Greek is used. How about the word draw here in John? I will draw all people to myself. We've already seen this is not a gentle, possibly ineffective wooing or influencing. This is a powerful drawing. John chapter 6, turn there. John chapter 6. Verse 41 says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, it is, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one is able, has the ability to come to the Son unless the Father, Elkiel, draws, hauls them to the Son. And I want you to see that this hauling is never ineffective because at the end of verse 44, it tells us that those who were drawn are those who were raised up on the last day. If you are drawn, if you are hauled, if you are dragged to Christ powerfully by God's irresistibly glorious grace, you will be raised up with Christ in the end. This is not an ineffectual call. And even, even skip up to verse 37. You want to know what this drawing looks like? Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All who were drawn will come to the Son. So clearly, those who are drawn actually come. They actually end up united to the Son. They actually end up raised in glorification on the last day. And so we see here in John 12, 32, when well-meaning opponents say, well, it says here he's going to draw everyone to himself. We know that this is not a woo. This is not an influence. This is an effective, effectual drawing, dragging, hauling people to Christ for salvation. And they come. And they drink, and they are satisfied in the sun. The Greeks say, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus follows up by saying, I will draw all people to myself, just like these Greeks. Christian read it in Romans 10 earlier. 
Romans 10.12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. So it says there, in the context of all, he's Lord of all. What does it mean? Well, he's using the word all to signify this is not just a Jewish savior. He is the savior of Jews and Greeks. That's why there's no distinction. The same Lord is Lord of all, Jews and Greeks. You see, we skip. We, we, we have the unfortunate disadvantage of not knowing the tensions of the early church. The church had to battle Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 15. They had to battle Galatians and, 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 and Colossians. And in even the latter chapters of Romans, they had to battle this thought that salvation was restricted to Jews. And if it wasn't just the Jews, then okay, then you still have to be circumcised and you still have to obey the laws of Moses. There was this constant tension between is it for the Jews or is it for everyone? We skip that in the past 2,000 years, and we, we don't see that tension. We don't feel that tension. If we were in the early churches in that day, there would be that tension. Tony could believe he could eat in and out, and he could eat anything he wants. While this other Jewish believer over here is like stumbling over the fact that Tony eats whatever he wants. Same with you other Gentiles. There was tension in the early church. So when these all passages are thrown out there, these universalistic passages thrown out there, they're meant to address the elitism, the elitist thinking of the Jewish people in that day. All without distinction. Not all without exception. Context is key. How about 2 Corinthians 5.14? Turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 5.14. 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. People will say things like, it says it there, he died for all. All means all, and that's all all means. End of the debate. All means all. But again, look at the context with me. Notice that at the very end of the verse, the all for whom Christ died, died too. He died for all, therefore all died. All have died. Past tense. Their death is in the past. They died with Christ. This is the same truth that's conveyed at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised by the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul the Apostle over and over again talked about how when Christ died, we died with him because we were united with him. There was an inseparable union between Christ and his people that God the Father designed. So that when Christ died on the cross, you died too, believer. When Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised too. He died for all, therefore all have died. And he explains further in verse 15. Look at this. And he died for all, And look at the explanation he offers. 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see what's going on here? Those for whom Christ died, number one, died too. They died with him. They died with Christ. They were united to Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection. And because of that, they walk in newness of life. So the all for whom Christ died in verse 14 are, number, are, 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 are those who died with Christ, believers, and those who now walk in newness of life. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. They might walk in newness of life. And so the question has to be asked, for whom did Christ die? He died for all, it says here. Well, the question then, well, did all of humanity die with Christ? Did the entire human race, all people without exception, did they die on that cross as well? And were they raised to newness of life? Will they be raised to newness of life? The answer is absolutely not. When Christ died, his people died with him. When Christ was raised, his people were raised with him. The all is restricted to his people. refers to the church, the elect, those united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. How about 1 Timothy chapter 2? This is a big one. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I trust you see that the all for whom Christ died, died with Christ and were raised with Christ. That's not something that can be said about every single person in this world. 1 Timothy chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. This passage is dripping with the word all, just to give you a warning. And it's no wonder why proponents of a universal or unlimited atonement often summon this verse to try to silence the particularists. Verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Gave himself as a ransom for all. God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 4 and verse 6. All people saved, all gave himself a ransom for all. A number of things can be said. But again, let's look at the immediate context. Because we have to ask, what is Paul addressing in his first letter to Timothy? Turn to chapter 1 with me. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In the original, not to teach strange doctrine. So there were people in Ephesus teaching strange doctrines. What were these doctrines? Well, look at verse 4 with me. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
Verse 7, these same false teachers who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Turn to chapter 4, verse 3 really quick. These same false teachers were forbidding marriage and were requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So when you put all of this together, you have these false teachers that were obsessed with endless genealogies, obsessed with the law, and were trying to enforce dietary food laws upon the people and forbid marriage. Well, guess what? We've just been confronted with everything else the New Testament confronts. Jewish elitism. The Judaizers of Galatia. This Jewish sect that in the early church was wreaking havoc upon the church, which is consistent with what Paul dealt with in Galatians and in Colossians and even in Romans chapter 14. This is what they had to hash out at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And the conclusion was that we don't have to bother the Gentiles with these laws anymore. Leave them alone. It's enough to believe in Christ by faith alone. That's it. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to adhere to the law. Quickly turn with me to Acts 22. Turn to your left. Go Acts chapter 22. The Apostle Paul is recounting his conversion. Acts 22. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me, Paul says, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. And now note this our ESV says everyone, but the phrase is literally all. People, all people. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone or to all people of what you have seen and heard. Mark, just keep your finger there, one of your fingers. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Paul says, when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in the synagogue after another, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned, I was, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, Paul says, was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, Paul's having this conversation with the Lord about, I would be really effective here. My life is in Judaism. Lord, you could really use me among the Jews. I mean, I was standing there when they were stoning Stephen, and I approved it. Imagine if I go to them now, they're going to believe the gospel. And now notice the very last verse. And he said to me, go. <laughs> like a father to their son, right? Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Gentiles. 
So when he says he appointed me to be a witness for all people, is that literally every single, does that mean every single person in the world? Or is the all people in this context, the Gentiles? Again, the context defines the word all. So back to 1 Timothy 2.7. Look at 2.7 now. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is a hot battle the church had to wrestle with. So when we come to 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved He's combating Jewish elitism that was focusing on these genealogies. I mean, who among all people were just fixated and fascinated with genealogies? Read your Old Testament. Got to be of this tribe. Got to be of this descent, this order. Paul combats that and says he desires all people to be saved. That's why I'm appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles, all people, not just Israel. This is not us reading or explaining away the plain meaning of the text. This is us saying, what's the context? What's the setting? Verse 7, he goes to the Gentiles. Did you know that even non-Calvinists, a non-Calvinist commentator, I. Howard Marshall, is not just a non-Calvinist, he's very outspoken against anything having to do with doctrines of grace or particular redemption or anything like that, commenting on this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, says, this universalistic thrust is most probably a corrective response to an exclusive elitist understanding of salvation connected with the false teaching. The context shows that the inclusion of the Gentiles alongside Jews in salvation is the primary issue here. That's a non-reformed guy telling you that what Paul's probably dealing with here is this Jewish elitism. And God's saying, he's saying, God desires all people to be saved. Not just Jews. Gentiles as well. All people. He's not teaching that God desires all to be saved, all people without exception, because if that was the case, why spend the effort teaching us over and over again about election and the particular nature of election throughout the rest of the Bible, describing it as even as the one event that sets all the other aspects of salvation into motion. If he desires to truly save everyone, why did he only choose some? That's not what this text is saying. The word desire, thelo, means he wants all people to be saved. He wills all people to be saved. That's an expression of his purpose. And again, we have to ask, can his purpose be frustrated? Can his purpose be thwarted? Job 42, verse 2. Job says, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So if he desires to save all people, then why doesn't he do it? No, Nobody can... For his purpose, does he try and then meet resistance and then back away because he's a gentleman? We've already dealt with that. Didn't he know they'd reject him in the first place? Of course he did. The better way to understand this is that God desires all people from every tribe and nation 
and language to be saved. Someone might say, well, you're adding that to the text. Well, the context leads us to that very reality. All without distinction, not all without exception. All is limited. Look at verse 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Here's our phrase again. Church, I want you to pray for all people. Timothy, I want you to pray for all people. Is that meaning all people without exception in the entire world? Paul couldn't even do that. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Does he mean all without exception? Everyone who's ever lived? Again, to use the hermeneutic or tactic that the universalist uses, well, all means all. Well, then, okay, get out your phone book and start with the A's and start praying for everyone. Well, not everyone's in the phone book. Well, you better find some way because Paul says, I desire that you pray for all people. All people. It's not all without exception, folks. It's all without distinction. And he goes on to clarify, for kings and all who are in high positions. To do so would be virtually impossible. All people in verse 1 is explained in verse 2. All classes, all kinds of people, kings and those in authority, those in high positions. Paul says, I know you might think it's impossible for these Roman officials to be saved. Pray for them. Pray for them. God desires all people to be saved, not just Jews and not just Gentiles, but kings and people in authority, all people. So the question is, why can we limit the word all in verses 1 and 2, but all when it comes to verses 4 and 5? All means all without exception. That's inconsistent. They're all connected. So when it says God desires all to be saved, it means all people. All people from different nations, different tribes, different languages. I know you guys are being blasted and bombarded with these Jewish elitists that are obsessed with genealogies. No. This salvation that comes from heaven is inclusive of all people from around the world, not just Jews. Contrary to what these false teachers are telling you. Well, verse 6 says, he gave himself a ransom for all, someone might say. All means all, and that's all all means. But notice the nature of the ransom. It wasn't a potential ransom. He gave himself as a ransom. Remember we looked at that word a few weeks ago when we were talking about particular redemption? What is a ransom? It was an actual price that was paid to liberate slaves from the slave market. You pay the price, you own the slave. You pay the price, you take that slave off the market and into your home. And you take care of him. That was a ransom. So, if we want to go the route of universalism, then we can say, Christ gave himself as a ransom for every single person without exception. He paid for them. Well, then why doesn't he have them? Why doesn't he have them? Because our God, our Savior, he gets what he pays for. The ransom price was guaranteed to set the slave free from his bondage to slavery. And in a spiritual sense, when he pays for his people, those people will be brought out of their captivity to sin and Satan. 
without a doubt. There's nothing here about a potential ransom. He gave himself as a potential ransom for all. No, that's you inserting possibility language in the text. He gave himself as a ransom. It actually frees his people. Who are the all? It's all his people. All of his people. The entire church. How about Titus 2.11? Turn there with me. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2.11. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it sounds like provisional language, doesn't it? Until you get to verse 14. But we'll get there. Again, what is Paul combating? Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Here we're faced again with this Jewish elitism. Titus 1.14 says, Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to talk about instructions for all kinds of people within the church. Old men. Old women. Young men. Husbands. Children. Younger men. Even all the way down to bond servants at the end. And then he follows up in chapter 2, verse 11, and says, For, or here's why. Here's why. Here's why in everything bond servants should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Young men, old, old women, slaves. You see how the context is forcing us to conclude that these all, for whom salvation has come, is all classes of people, all types of people, all kinds of people, not just one type of person, all without distinction. Let's turn now to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9 is a big one that many, many people will point to and marshal in these kinds of discussions. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, you have the universalists would say things like, well, that's just a plain reading of the text. Look at what it says. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to reach repentance. Well, again, instead of allowing our preconceived ideas of what this means and what it's saying, we have to ask, Peter, who are you writing to? What's the situation you're dealing with there? In Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these surrounding places. Well, verse 8, he refers to them as Beloved, notice that the phrase in verse 9, not wishing that any should perish, is prefaced by the statement, patient toward you. 
or in some translations, patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So my question to you is, why can Paul be specific in the first part of the verse? God is patient toward us, the church. He is patient toward you, the church, but he's not wishing that any, and why, why, why then is all of a sudden that word any referring to the entire world? He defines the context as being limited to the people of God. Not wishing that any of you to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, who is he talking to? Because in chapter 3, verse 1, look at that. This is now the second letter I am writing to you. So that throws us back to the first letter. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Remember that comment in John chapter 7? Is he going to go to the Gentiles, the Greeks that are scattered throughout the dispersion? Yes, he is. To those who are elect exiles, there they are. Who are these people? They are elect. Elect according to what? Verse 2. Verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's who he's writing to. Chosen exiles who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Sanctified by the Spirit of God. Turn to chapter 2, verse 9. Because whoever's being addressed in chapter 2, verse 9, is also being addressed in 2 Peter 3, 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when you put all of this together, he's addressing the same community of people. Go back to 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Who is he writing to? The beloved? The chosen ones? Those chosen by foreknowledge? Sprinkled by Christ's blood? The chosen race? The royal priesthood? The holy nation? Those called out of darkness? And as a means of comforting the church, in verse 9, he says, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. What promise? The promise of a new heavens. And a new work, as we're going to see. But, notice, is patient toward you, the elect, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, those sprinkled by the blood of Christ. He's patient toward his beloved, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This verse is not teaching that God doesn't want anyone in this world, all without exception, any without exception, to perish. He's saying he's patient toward you, the church. He wants all to come to salvation. He says that down in verse, let's see here. The patience of the Lord is salvation. As God waits, verse 15, the count, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, also wrote you. Do you see how we can easily read these verses in an irresponsible, 
superficial manner and come away with a type of universalism. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any... Well, what's the antecedent? It's you, not wishing that any of you, any of us should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. Second Peter, or Second Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant his enemies repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So when you put that alongside 2 Peter 3.9, one, how is it a comfort to the church waiting for the consummation, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth? How is it a comfort to say, church, he's patient towards you. He doesn't want anyone in the world to perish. That makes no sense. That's not, that's not comfort. But would it be comfort to say, he is patient toward you, church. I know you're waiting. I know the trials are strong. I know they're hot. I know you're being crushed and, 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 and marginalized in your society. But he's patient toward you. He's not wishing that any, any of who? Any of his elect to perish, but that all should reach repentance. All should reach repentance. That all should come to that point in their lives when God grants repentance. And for all of us, it's different. That's the context, friends. That's not us trying to insert something into the text. That's just the plain reading of the text. If not plain, a little bit deeper. Context, context, immediate context, wider context. In the same way that the world, the word all is not self-interpreting, can we agree that the word world is not self-interpreting? Earlier in John chapter 12, the Pharisees are complaining. They're saying, the whole world has gone after Jesus. Did they mean, you could hear this rumbling of the Egyptians coming from south or southwest. Could they hear the Chinese coming from the east? The whole world is rushing towards Jesus. The word world is not a self-interpreting world. Self-interpreting word, just like the word all. So when we come to passages like John 3.16, God so loved the world, speaks of his intent, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have to, ter- we have to interpret that phrase in light of the wider context of John's gospel. What is the world in light of John's gospel? Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, who is, John ta- who is Jesus talking to in John chapter 3? A Pharisee of Pharisees. He's talking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the teacher in Israel. And he says to him, for God so loved the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles, that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If we were to ask the question, who are those in the Gospel of John that are given the gift of eternal life? We might say, well, it's those who believe. John 3.16. If you believe, you'll be given eternal life. Well, what about John chapter 17? Listen to these words. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, verse 1, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all flesh. No, to give eternal life 
to all whom you have given him. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the world at large, not just the, those within the borders of Israel, that he gave his only son. To give eternal life to who? Well, on one hand, it's all who believe, John 3.16. On the other hand, it's all those and only those whom the Father gave him. We've got to put the whole picture together, friends. We can't just pick apart John 3.16 and say, well, my theology and all of my theology is built upon John 3.16. Well, that's irresponsible. That's irresponsible. We want to be whole Bible Christians where we take and not pick and choose what we want. We pick the entire thing and say, let's try to figure it out. And let's not take the Christian agnostic approach and say, well, these things are too deep for us to truly fathom. Let's not even try. That's laziness. That's laziness. We're not called to be Christian agnostics. We're called to study the deep things of God, to search out like kings the glory of these hidden things. Finally, one last verse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Thank you for bearing with me this morning. 1 John chapter 2. We read this. He begins in verse 1. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world Friends, there's no reason for us to be threatened by that verse. You know, when Jesus stepped on the scene in John's gospel, what did John the Baptist say when he identified him? And this would have been offensive to all those who were coming out to see. You had the religious leaders, you had the Pharisees coming out. They all were speculating about John's baptism. And when John saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb and world did not go hand in hand in the Old Testament. Lamb and Israel went hand in hand. The Passover lamb, the Passover feast, sacrificial lambs. That was something known and appreciated only by Jews from the Passover, from the Exodus, all the way up until the New Testament. But when John sees the lamb approach he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Meaning, this is not just restricted to Jews and Gentiles. Do you see how this gap of 2,000 years, we miss that? We, we, we overlook it. We don't know and feel. and are, we, We're never affected by the tensions between Jews and Gentiles in that day. And so when Paul says all and John says world, that's their way of saying this is more than just Jewish salvation. This is to the ends of the earth. That's what's happening. So when John says, he, Jesus, is the propitiation, stop right there. What is a propitiation? We've considered words like redemption. It's the liberating of slaves by the payment of a price. We've considered words like reconciliation, to bring two opposing parties 
and unite them. God is offended at our sin. Jesus reconciles the Father to us. We are hostile towards his glory. We'd rather trade it. But Jesus reconciles us to the Father. His death was a propitiation. His death was a reconciliation. His death was a redemption. Propitiation means a sacrifice that is offered in the place of a sinner that actually absorbs and averts the wrath of Almighty God. The wrath that should be poured out upon the sinner is poured out upon the sacrifice. And therefore, the wrath that was once directed towards you 2,000 years ago fell down upon the head of Christ, our propitiation. And so we know when we turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, this is actual propitiation, friends. Again, this is not hypothetical. This is not possible. This is not potential propitiation. He is the propitiation. He is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Meaning what? This is not just Jewish salvation. John was a Jew. The apostles, by and large, they were Jews. But John is saying this is for the sins of the whole world. People from all tribes and nations and languages. It says world, someone might say, well, it also says propitiation. And so if he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, then no one should be in hell experiencing the righteous wrath of God. If he is a propitiation for their sins, they should not deserve, they, they should not be paying for their sins. They should not have to bear the unmitigated fury of a holy God throughout eternity because, well, he's a propitiation for the whole world. That's not what the text says. He is the actual wrath-averting, wrath-absorbing, wrath-satisfying sacrifice for the sins of his people all around the world. And it's interesting because John 11, 52, there's somewhat of a parallel here. Same writer, just different letter. Listen to John chapter 11. I want you to compare that to how 1 John 2, 2 sounds. John eleven fifty two. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man, speaking of Jesus, should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, if Rome's going to come in here and spank us, discipline us, kill us, let's just, just let them kill Jesus. Then, whether, then all of us pay for this insurrection, this havoc that we're causing. Verse 51 is very interesting. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And now listen to, first, listen to verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you see how John's, his language is, is, is parallel with what he's saying in 1 John 2 too. He is a propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
In John 11:52, he didn't just come to die for the nation, the people of Israel, but to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Scattered abroad where? All over the globe. All over the world. Yes, it says all, but it also says propitiation, not potential propitiation. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Jewish men like Peter and John and James, but who also takes away the sins of us who are on the other side of the world. Friends, why are we doing this as we come to a close? Why take the time to study these particularistic passages? Is it so that we can celebrate the fact that God's saving intentions are not for all? It's not the case. It grieves us. It does. To know that not all are chosen and not all will inherit the kingdom of God. We should care about these things, one, because God has explained these things to us in his word. But secondly, we should care about these things because we want to protect the saving efficacy of Christ's once-for-all perfect sacrifice that will not fail, cannot fail. When we throw out language like, well, Christ died for all people without exception, and then that sacrifice fails to bring them to God, taints the sacrifice. Someone might say, well, he died to make it possible. Nowhere in the Bible does he say that he simply died to make it possible. He died as an actual ransom, an actual atonement, an actual propitiation. And those whom he pays for will come. They will be sought because they've been bought. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, I plead with you to turn to him. I plead with you to turn to him to believe upon him. And you might say, well, according to your theology, I can't. According to your theology, I won't. But I'm still called to call you. I am still called to tell you to turn from your sins. And if you turn to Christ and you run to him and you call upon his name, you will receive a full and free pardon of your sin. And you will not pay for it. The wrath of God that you deserve will not be poured out upon you because it was poured out upon your propitiation the Lamb of God. If you come, you will be received. Christ said, of all who come to me, I will never drive them away. If you desire the water of life, come and get it. It's yours. And you will discover, like the rest of us, that the reason you came and the reason you heard and the reason your heart melted at the thought of this was that God opened the heart. God opened your ears. And why did he open your ears? Because he chose you before the foundation of the world. And he sent his son to pay for you. That's why you came. And you might say, but I freely came. He didn't bring me kicking and screaming. None of us are saying that. No one comes kicking and screaming. We come believing. We come trusting. We come savoring the goodness and grace of God because we've been given new hearts to to savor And taste forever the goodness of God. Salvation is of the Lord.